Hello and welcome to Election Daily's coverage of the 2022 local elections. Today I'm joined by Elizabeth Dennis Harburg, who's the Labour leader of the North Hertfordshire uh, administration. So Elizabeth, what's the expected outcome for this election? Um, it depends what day of the week and what the weather's like, if you're asking that question, to be honest. Some days I'll feel quite positive and say that we're going to maintain sufficient seats across Labour and Liberal Democrat areas to, to hold a joint administration. And other days, I might feel like the Conservatives are going to gain the, the two seats that they need to, to take back control. So I'm I'm always very pessimistic at election time anyway. Our data at the moment is, is uncharacteristically positive, which almost makes me feel more pessimistic. Um, what's the best case and worst scenario in terms of numbers for yourself? So I think the, the best case looking at where um, the two parties in the administration are positioning is that we might gain an additional two or three seats, but equally worst case scenario, we could fail to make any gains and we could potentially lose two, if not three seats across both parties. So it's, the numbers are still are still going to be close either either way. What are the wards specifically for, for people not acquainted with North Hampshire politics that would really give the battlegrounds to, to see where it's going. Okay, so um, in North Hearts, we've got four main market towns in Hitchin, Letchworth, Baldock and Royston. And then we've got a number of villages and hamlets. Labour and the Liberal Democrats tend to do well in those more urban conurbations. So the key battlegrounds for Labour will be Hitchin, Walsworth Ward. Um, and in Letchworth, we have Letchworth South East. And we're also fighting to gain Baldock Town as well. That would be a gain from the Conservatives. Liberal Democrats should hold the majority of their Hitchin seats. They're looking to make a gain in Letchworth Southwest, where previously they managed to oust the Conservative leader of the council on a straw poll, which was quite, quite dramatic and, and traumatic, actually, in, in equal measures. Um, and they're hoping to also hold their seats in Royston as well. The, the villagers, more likely than not, are potentially going to, to remain Conservatives, but we might see surprises in places like Codicott. What are the main issues you're going to be campaigning on? So we're campaigning across, across the board on shoring up what Labour and Liberal Democrats working together positively in power can deliver for our residents. So we started a lot of environmental work over the last two and a half years and really amped that up in the last 12 months. We've entered into a, a bulk buy solar panel scheme that residents can access to help improve the energy efficiency of their homes. We're currently working on a very in-depth master planning process that will make sure that development in the area and people when they build their own homes and extend are following the most environmentally and sustainable standards. Um, and we really need that piece of work to complete and to conclude. So it's vital that we have the joint administration returned and strengthened, hopefully, after May to keep that tracking forward. We've got a very ambitious biodiversity programme that, that we've rolled out. We've planted, I think, over, over 10,000 trees, if not significantly more than that, um, across the district. We're working closely with our housing partners as well um, to deliver an increase in social housing. And we're looking at innovative ways that we can provide more real terms, affordable housing to to people across the district, as well as continuing with the excellent community engagement work that that we've championed in the in the last two and a half to three years. So obviously, with the caveats uh, of, of lower turnout, what can we learn from the Hitchin Highbury by-election? 
Um, Hitch and Highbury by-election was interesting because obviously the circumstances that brought that about were the, the sad loss of, of my deputy um, council leader and leader of the Liberal Democrat group, Paul Clark. So there was a particular amount of emotion didn't feel able to field a candidate in the district or the county seats because of our relationship with Paul and the and the very sad loss of him as a as a friend and, and colleague to many of us. So it's it's a little bit it's a little bit different to a to a normal by-election or a or a normal election year. Um, and the candidate that's standing in Hitchin Highbury this time round in the in the normal terms district council elections is Sam Collins, who's currently the prospective parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats and quite quite well liked and very popular within within that ward as well. So it's almost one of those where it's a it's a potential outlier result rather than an indicator. So listening to you speak, there seems to be a very close connection between the Liberal Democrats and Labour. Now, is there any degree of pact that you guys have had, maybe a non-aggression pact or standing down in certain seats? No, we've we've never entered into a non-aggression or or an agreement not to stand in, cer in certain seats. We do have conversations, obviously, about where we're targeting and where they're targeting. And at the moment, actually, our ambitions as political parties don't cross over. So there's no need for us to have those kind of approaches. And when you look at where we've sort of traditionally fought hard and where the Liberal Democrats traditionally fight hard, those those boundaries aren't aren't changing this election. I'm not saying they might not in the future, but for the time being, we're, we're able to coexist quite quite comfortably as partners. Now, in the spring statement, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak talked about additional funding to local authorities as a way to kind of get more money to people using localised uh, knowledge. What's your opinion on uh, what he talked about with local authorities in the spring statement? And how do you think that the government should be doing more to help local authorities give out the required funding? Well, I think that the words that we've heard from the Chancellor are all well and good, but we've heard these words from Chancellors in the past and from Secretaries of State in um, variously different named departments. And it's quite telling to me that actually for the first time in over 50 years, local government does not appear in the title of any government department. So if Rishi Sunak was genuinely serious and if Boris Johnson's government is genuinely serious about supporting local government, I would query why we are not front and centre in ministers' minds. Um, we aren't receiving funding. We receive our funding settlements on a one-year basis, and we only tend to find out about those in November. Local authorities set our budgets in February of each year, so it is a surprise until two and a half months before we're due to finalise and present our budget for voting on what our funding situation is, is going to be. That's not how you treat a trusted partner. And actually, I don't think that there is any business organisation in the world that operates under such financial uncertainty as local government. The other thing that concerns me about both the spring statement and the Chancellor's words, and also Michael Gove's position and the white paper coming through the Department for Housing and Leveling Up Communities, um, is that this bizarre Oliver Twist situation where councils of all levels must go to government with a bowl in hand and say, please, sir, can I have some more while competing against each other? It, 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 can't, it can't continue. We cannot compete as North Hearts District Council against the likes of Andy Burnham in Manchester on levelling up bids. We can't, we can't compete against other county councils and it's not right and it's not 
fair, but equally we shouldn't be being bounced and forced into moving towards unitary authorities or having democratically elected mayors because there isn't actually a one-size-fits-all policy or approach that will work for local government because we are our people, we are our communities, we're the closest form of government to our communities, we know them best and every community across the country is different and will have quirks in the way that it needs to be represented to, to achieve the best and most positive outcomes for, for those people in those areas. How would you, in, in your ideal scenario or world, how would you view local government uh, changing and adapting over time? I think that that's, that is a difficult question, given what I've just said about every every area is going to need and have slightly different local governments. So um, where we are in Hertfordshire, we've got a number of, we've got 10 or 11 different districts and boroughs and the needs of people in Watford and St Albans and Stevenage, despite our close geographic proximity, are going to be fundamentally different to the needs of the people in Hitchin and Letchworth and Perton and Kim, you know, and all of our all of our little little villages were, were all slightly different. And we might have more in common with our neighbours in East Hearts, for example, on some things, but more in common with people in Stevenage on other things. Yet we're all lumped together in this county council mix. And the county council is the one that tends to have the biggest voice to do localism, why while we as districts and boroughs really have to fight incredibly hard. We do work together as leaders across Hertfordshire to achieve the best collectively and then individually for our residents. But even that is a challenge. In the past, we saw a push from the former county council leader to move us towards a whole of Hertfordshire unitary authority. Now, given the disparity and differences that I've indicated, that wouldn't work for us. But there's nothing to say that potentially allowing us to draw our own lines on the map and come up with smaller units and looking at what's going to work in terms of real strategic delivery, perhaps even across conventional county boundaries for, for our people might be, might be more beneficial. I think it's time for us to, to really think about local government in a true 21st century way and consider what kind of innovations can, uh, can we come up with. Is my neighbour that, that lives across the road but happens to be in a different county, this is a hypothetical neighbour, obviously, there's no county line down the middle of Letchworth on my road, um, but is my hypothetical neighbour across that county line so radically different to me and my community that they deserve to be in a different administrative area? No. Do their bins need emptying at the same time? Is it weird that we have two bin wagons from two different authorities going down the same street? Why don't we do something about that? Why don't we why don't we think outside the box and sweep aside these medieval baronets and sort of historic lines on maps that don't make sense for service delivery anymore and come up with something that's that's more practical? Oh, and if we're being practical about things, why don't we make sure that it is funded properly by central government? And rather than central government controlling all of the money, we are able to retain more than 12 pence in every pound of our council tax. And we are able to spend all of the money that we collect for our residents on our residents and on the services that they tell us that they actually need, rather than us having to penny pinch from one pot to another because we're scared that government won't give us the money we need to do the best we can. When it comes to local government, there's a lot of, I've been speaking to various different people and they've talked about various different reforms that they believe need to happen for local government to really survive and have the greatest impact within their local community. Uh, one of the things that's come up quite a lot is council tax reform. And something I've kind of heard about was obviously the Preston model. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I just wonder, what are your thoughts on those two different things? 
I think that council tax fundamentally has to reform because, as I indicated, we collect it as an authority, but the amount of money that we keep is relatively small. Um, and we also spend a lot of time collecting in the funds and then passing them on to the county council or to central government to distribute and then having funds received back to us that we've already passed up to central government. I'm just having a quick look because I do have a graphic that breaks down where our council tax goes in North Hearts. Um, bear with me. Da, 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 da. I want... I'm not going to be able to find it very quickly, but I have basically a pie chart that shows me. Ah, no, that's not. That's where, what we spend each of our money that we get to keep on services. Um, so I think the long and short of it is that count, local councils should be entitled to keep the money that we collect through our council tax to fund our own services, rather than it being cycled through government. We should also be able to receive business rates and we shouldn't be constantly having to, to fight and to, and to argue and to say, well, this is money that we've collected from our businesses it should be spent in our towns on our high streets by by us rather than going to some central government department to to fund to be quite frank goodness knows what the government already collects a lot of centralized taxes it doesn't need to have these things run through the treasury and it actually damages local efficiency and service delivery um, on the preston model we've looked at that historically in the past along with a number of other different cooperative type models and way of ways of delivering service and what we find is because we're not a city we're effectively four medieval market towns plus the villages and farm hamlets around those towns that type of model doesn't work for us but there's no reason why we can't pick and choose the best bits from Preston, Preston or look at some of the things that Nottingham has done with its energy efficiencies and its bus service delivery and go well we're not that size of a council but we've managed to put solar panels on our roof and we can work with colleagues at Harts County to create a on-demand trans rapid transport service as well and we can think creatively about how we're going to install EV charging points and we can look across down to the south at Plymouth and what they've been able to do with acquiring empty property spaces and turning those spaces into startup hubs and incubators for for businesses within within the community to help regenerate their town centre so so we do a lot of that work and we link in through the co-op council's innovation network as well to to ensure that we are across the piece in looking at the different innovations and we've engaged in policy labs as well around some of our biodiversity and environmental delivery work and strategies as well policies in north hertfordshire that uh, if i remember i believe you're in an attempt to try to purchase the uh, Churchgate Shopping Centre. Could you explain uh, to people who aren't aware what the advantages of this is? And what would you say to people who would argue that uh, local government or any real governance doesn't belong in uh, commercial ventures? So that's, that's interesting. So the Churchgate Shopping Centre um, in Hitchin is a piece of 1970s brutalist architecture. I think that's the kindest way of, of phrasing it. And it's not necessarily um, being kept up to the standards that, that many would like. I think for the last 30 years, potentially even more than that, there's been on and off battles fought about what's the best ownership and delivery model of this particular town centre asset. And this year we've been in the best position um, historically to, to acquire the asset ourselves as a council, which then means that 
we own not only the freehold, which we already have, but the leasehold as well. And given that we also have the land packages in different areas around the Churchgate Shopping Centre, there's a little bit more scope for us to do things and to deliver than a traditional developer-led model, which would just own the leasehold for the, for the shopping centre and would still need to interact and potentially might want to use our space and items of land in the public realm in a way that we might feel as a council isn't complementary to, the, to their use as, as public spaces. So that's kind of why we've been pushing so hard to try and, try and acquire it. It's, it's basically thinking about what do the people of not just Hitchin, but North Hearts need from a, from a vital town centre asset that's got the potential to be to be a, a linchpin as a, as a destination to draw people into North Hearts and to, and to grow and drive our economy. Um, it's not unusual, I think, for, for councils to, to own shopping centres. Um, or to be sort of involved in them in some way. I think the, um, I can't remember which group it is, but I think the Oracle in Reading might have been owned by um, the local authority in the past. I know that Oxford's new shopping centre was recently redeveloped in conjunction and had a lot of work done and input from the, from the local authority too. It's just all about figuring out what you want from your space um, and what's going to be the most beneficial way of delivering that for people, for people within your area. Churchgate itself has sat in the private realm with its leasehold for, for decades, and there's not been a successful developer-led um, proposition that's come forward that's been able to meet the needs of the local community. And equally, um, the, the leaseholders, while doing the best that they absolutely can with the asset, haven't necessarily met the expectations of, of many around the town. So it's it's effectively creating the opportunity for us to do something really positive and productive and use that power that local government and councils have of, of being able to convene people to get everyone together in the right place to then start to to build something positive in a in a truly collaborative way which you don't tend to get if it's just a developer wanting to to develop do the thing move on quickly and make a profit moving in uh effectively a coalition with the liberal democrats what do, uh, would you want to do if you were a, a majority administration and where have you been held back in your uh, your desires to change North Hertfordshire? Oof, that's that's tough because I, I think my initial reaction to that is I don't think that we have been held back. I think that we can always do more and we can always push and challenge ourselves. But there's there's an awful lot that we have in common as, as people in local government full stop. We all tend to want, no matter what our party colour, the same thing, which is the best for our communities. It's just that sometimes the journey looks a different, a little different depending what colour your rosette is. Um, with us working with Liberal Democrats, um, we have got a slight majority of Labour cabinet members to reflect that we are the majority party. But each of our cabinet members has got a deputy of the other party within the administration. And we've been working collaboratively and policy sharing. And when we look at our manifestos and what the Liberal Democrats set out in their sort of pre-election and post-election ones, we're not very far apart on things, on things at all. I can't think of a single instance when we've had a direct conflict between a Labour policy and a Liberal Democrat policy at this authority in the last near, nearly three years. And I think that's that's testament to, to how, how closely we aligned we are on, on a lot of the issues. 
Um, there was one major promise, I think, that they made in 2019 around getting rid of the charge for garden waste, um, which we didn't match because we knew, having knowledge of the waste contract, that it wasn't financially viable to do that. And that is something that they quickly realised and, and was dropped as a, as a narrative. And we've worked proactively since then to introduce concessionary charges for garden waste to help people on on lower incomes. And when we have had to increase the charge this year, it's been a below inflation increase. And it still is, you know, not a, a service that generates a surplus for the authority. So that's, that's, that's the closest to conflict we've had. I don't doubt that in future we might come up against issues if we want to sort of, I don't know, if it comes to certain planning matters um, in, di in different areas, the local plan might be an issue because a lot of our Liberal Democrat colleagues did vote against the current local plan way back in 2016, I think. Um, but again, it's, it's about having those productive conversations internally within the administration and looking for the opportunities and thinking about the consequences of taking a particular hard line on things. And I think that that's, that's where our strengths as parties and as individuals have, have come from over, over the years, because we are able to take those difficult issues and have those conversations offline and then present, you know, a united front and work together as a positive administration. Looking at you personally, you're very active on Twitter. How do you deal with the uh, online world, especially when it comes to online abuse, which we know is uh, can be extremely, extremely bad for multiple people across the political spectrum? And what do you think should be done for the online world to try to manage this issue? Why? God, this is the this is the absolute worst and most horrible question. So, okay, um, a thing that I say often, whether it's online in a public space, privately at home to to my husband or, or with my friends, and actually also within um, Labour women's group meetings that I've been having, is if you put yourself in this position, if you go into politics, you have got to expect that you will get abuse, you will get harassment, you will get death threats, you will get everything nasty and negative you can possibly think of because that's the way the world is and you are naive if you think that that's not going to happen to you is that right is that actually okay should people behave like that no I, I think anybody that answers that question yes really needs to go and have a very long conversation in the mirror with themselves so that's 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 my starting point i i expect at some point i will have to deal with behavior like this and I know that I will get it more because I'm a woman. I know I will get it more because I'm a younger woman in politics. None of these things make it okay, but because it's expected, that almost gives me the resilience and the armor to when it does happen, just go, ah, so what? And a lot of the time I ignore it. There are some times and there are some individuals that I will go and I'll look, I go, okay, you've got this many followers. I don't really care. I could clap back if I wanted to. I'm not going to because it's, it's pointless. And then there's other times where it's like, well, that's actually crossed a line and I want to draw attention to, to this. So I am going to highlight again, this is a misogynistic comment or you've been so ridiculous and you've misstated fact to the point of it almost being slander. So I'm going to correct you on that. And then I move on and I, and I leave it at that because you don't need to be drawn into long wars on social media with people who have entrenched positions or I just doing something because they've got nothing better to do with their time a lot of the time I think and the thing with Twitter not so much with the sort of community-based groups on Facebook but with Twitter in, in particular is 
it's often just people screaming into the air. Your audience isn't targeted. It's very difficult to sort of capture a local group because it relies on active engagement and people trying to find you, whereas some of the Facebook stuff can drip through and can be a bit more passive engagement. So if somebody is sat behind their keyboard and is too frightened or afraid to come and say those things to my face and typing away, I'm I'm okay with that. I don't I don't I don't care. And I don't think that that anybody should lower themselves to to the standards of those particular troglodytes. Um, in a in a word. Um, what should the authorities do about it? Well, um, there are certain criminal offences, obviously, around harassment, malicious communications. There's the civil suits that you could lodge under defamation law. There is no point starting a defamation case against an individual on Twitter. It will cost you more money than it is worth. And realistically, what are you going to get out of it? And by the time you do get an injunction, if that is what you're going for, they will have been able to carry up and rack up so much abuse that you might as well have just proceeded with a malicious comms case and let the police deal with things. Um, should Twitter and Facebook have stronger and more robust policies for being able to, to report abuse and harassment and hate? Yeah, because I don't think it's okay to report a tweet that in law, if the police looked at it and had the time to deal with it, they might issue a formal warning to somebody and for Twitter's algorithm or bot that looks at the complaint form to within 60 seconds kick the complaint out. That's not acceptable. If you're going to provide a platform for people to hurl abuse, then you need to have robust systems in place to actually capture, correct, and, and deal with that abuse. But that's my that's my utopia. That's my positive way of looking at it. In, in, in reality, people can continue hurling abuse, and I'll continue to sit here and go, I don't care. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's been fantastic. We've, we've been trying to get this organised <laughs> for a few weeks now. It's, I'm glad it's finally happened. It's been a, really great to sit down and talk to you uh so thank you very much and i wish you all the best in your campaign cool so thank you if you haven't already uh please follow us on twitter at election daily you can follow me personally at aaron underscore g smith uh for all of you at home i hope you enjoyed listening and i hope you have a good day